Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to a highly conversation. Welcome everyone to another session of a highly conversations. Today we have our guest Filipa Ramos with us. Filipa is a writer, curator and educator who's been working on the relationship between contemporary art and cinema and the way environmental and ecological matters of concern are tackled or manifested in and through art. Filipa is one of the founding curators of Vidrom, a self-proclaimed online cinema, and she's also a curator of Art Basel Film and a lecturer in the Art and Moving Image Masters of Research program at Central St. Martins, as well as the uh, Master program of the Art Institute in Basel. She co-curates the Symposia series, or the Interdisciplinary Festival, as they call them, uh, named The Shape of a Circle in the Mind of a Fish, with Lucia Pietrusti for the Serpentine Galleries in London. And also, Filippa is currently the head of research and publications for the 13th Shanghai Biennale. So welcome, Filippa Ramos. It's great to have you with us today. Maybe we can start uh, by asking where you are at the moment. What are you going through? I mean, there is two main, let's say, threads of discussions that I wanted to talk with you, and I think both of them become ever more relevant in regards to the times we are going through at the moment. So one thread is like how we relate to non-human life forms or non-human entities. And the second thread is the apparatus of reception available to cultural work and how it kind of translated in this shift. Where I am physically is attuned and also in contrast with where I am mentally because physically I am in a small house inside a natural park in the north of France Mm. where I have more birds and wildlife than people for company and this because after working for so many years in the intersections between art and nature I thought it was time to actually practice it. And I got myself also realizing I would never be able to afford a house in London. I got myself a little house here. And what in the beginning was a plan to spend holidays and some intermittent periods writing and being here, it turned out since uh, March into a, a very different experience, which is also a radical experience of of privilege and confusion, which is that of having the privilege of leaving the city. I was actually, last week, I was reading a really beautiful text that architecture historian Beatrice Colomina wrote for Eflux, in which she was mentioning her experience of being in New York with her daughter and how New York became deserted since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis and how she felt that she had to be in the city and she would not abandon the city. 
And this is a little bit what I felt. So I feel I'm privileged enough to have a place outside the city where to come. And at the same time, I feel I'm betraying not so much London. London has been betraying me for many years, but (laughs) (laughs) being betraying my peers and the family that the community in London became by being in a sort of a luxurious exile. So it's it's an interesting position that where I am, and also thinking what to take from from this moment in the sense of not allowing the virus to infest our brains and our souls totally, but at the same time also allow this experience, which I think is largely an experience of humility and of paradigm shift, to have a transformative effect. And with this, also understanding what is the relationship I have with space and with cities. and Because if cities empty themselves of those who have the possibility or the privilege to leave them, what remains of them in terms of being fundamental sites for cultural exchange, for cultural production, for emancipation, for forward thinking, and for education as well. So it's a little bit in a place full of questions and little answers that I am right now. Yeah, fantastic. No, I mean, I was thinking also in preparing for our meeting today and also in general going through the whole past nine months or eight months, I don't know how long it has become now, that this kind of trying to, in a way, reconcile the gap between like what I know theoretically speaking, like what I think is right or what I think is how things ought to be with regards to space, with regards to cities, with regards to our encounters and entanglements with other species, with other beings, and then the actuality of it. And in the actuality, the kind of drive to resort or to maintain oneself and maintain one's sanity if you have the privilege, as you underlined, which I totally agree, was this kind of, let's say, oscillation between these two states. And I think maybe it's something that uh, we need to go through. Maybe it's also allowing us to, to run some checks and balances about our knowledge so far as like collectively and individually accumulated about how things should be. But I think it seems to me that some radical change, especially probably in the next generation's mental scape, some paradigm shifts are bound to happen, I feel like. But then one can't help but think about also those who don't have the privilege to remove themselves from the everyday life, from the city, from the infrastructure, or from the day-to-day, like having to work. And then I don't know what to think either. You know, I think the problem, it's almost an elephant in the room. We keep speaking about this, but I think it's the impracticality of it that emerges, which it's the time matter. In the sense, I believe many of global heads of state and politicians, depending on the context, but many of them are fully aware that we are in a situation of emergency. But at the same time, we put ourselves in the position that the state is not thinking long-term, but is thinking short or medium-term, if we're good. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, the states know this. I remember like a year and a half ago, I was in, in Berlin in the Max Planck Institute, and they were saying, you know, most states 
people right now, they know the way we are in relation to carbon emission, in relation to pollution, to plastic production, so on and so forth. At the same time, they can't do anything else than postpone and make promises. And they say, okay, this will happen. The EU will stop plastic production in 2023. And they keep postponing these dates because it's the only thing that they can make because they have to, to attend to the economy and everything else. And what I believe that this whole situation we are living in this year is exposing at last is that social justice and environmental justice are the same. Poverty, pollution, inequality, systems of exploitation and abuse and the extractive relationship we have with the planet, they are entangled. They're the same thing. So we cannot resolve environmental <laughs> issues without tackling social justice and without tackling poverty. And it cannot be exactly that environmental and ecological decisions are made by those who have the privilege to make them and then criticize the others who cannot. So it's at the risk of sounding very sensualist and very generic and a little bit like let's solve poverty and we'll sort everything. I think that if we don't understand the connection that exists between these issues and the connection is not simply that a virus came from an animal and jumped to us and we share DNA and we are one. Yes, we all know that or we are more or less aware of that. But it's the fact that it's not about environmental justice. It's about solving society's major issues that we get somewhere. And I think this is being put in evidence right now in a way that is very uncomfortable and in the way that is also generating manifestations of violence and of fragility and of insatisfaction. I, despite the turnout of the American elections, it is clear that, for instance, there's a large part of the American electorate that have a desire for Donald Trump to stay in power. And in my opinion, it's not a coincidence that this happens now. It's almost like I feel vulnerable. I feel exposed. I'm scared. So I want someone who protects me. And even if they protect me with lies, even if they protect me in an abusive manner, just the fact that they say, no, this won't happen, or yes, you can continue with life as it was, this gives me hope and this is what I have. No? So what I think is that we are living in such a moment of awareness of vulnerability and exposure to the unknown that on the one hand we're tend to embrace strange paradigms and on the other we tend to make choices that may go against ourselves but that gives us a little bit of hope <laughs> mm -hmm. and what role do you think cultural production can play in claiming a certain response ability in the way donna haraway mentions it can you know Chen, i don't know mm -hmm. on the one hand It's an interesting example, but uh, as you mentioned, I'm involved in the upcoming Shanghai Biennial. Mm -hmm. And the organization of the Shanghai Biennial is mirroring the large transformation, let's say, a growth of controlling and conservative policies in China and its attempt to rewrite history. So we also are being subjected to a large amount of control over what we can say, over what we can show, and over who and how we show things. 
So on the one hand, I tend to try to think in a humble way and have the perception that art and culture can do very little. And sometimes like, oh, we overestimate our power. We actually, we believe we're transforming something, but on the large extent, we are largely preaching to the converted in a way. Mm. But on the other hand, the fact that such a regime, such a powerful regime in a country that is so massive is paying so much attention to culture and to the potential disruptive strengths of culture gives me hope. (laughs) (laughs) Because it makes me believe that art and culture have a voice that can be heard and that have a voice that if it's not according to the dominant voice of certain political cultures, it is considered dangerous. And so I believe that in our humbleness of knowing that very often we are indeed preaching to the converted, on the other hand, I think that the fact that major regimes look at culture as a danger Mm -hmm. should make us aware of the huge importance and huge responsibility that we have as cultural producers to help transform and help emancipate society. Yeah. Looking at your practice, just through reading the multiple roles that you are engaged in, you seem to also navigate between several contexts that approach culture in different senses. And maybe what you said just right now also uh, makes me think and wonder the ways in which you infiltrate those spaces. By those spaces, I mean one, obviously, the in a scale of the Biennale, the Shanghai case, as you just mentioned. The second one being the, let's say, art market context, arguably in like with how you inhabit art Basel in a certain extent. And then there is the more, let's say, intellectual exchange and platform that takes place with the festival uh, with serpentine galleries and mm. things like that and also vidrom which is more catering to an online community or online audience how do you navigate these various realms you are inhabiting simultaneously you know it's funny because i think they are more connected than they seem so vidrom actually is born out of the desire that is not mine but is of a an extraordinary publisher and editor based in Milan called Eduardo Bonaspetti, who founded a publication called Mousse, mm-hmm. and now who moved to do other editorial projects. And Eduardo approached me and Andrea Lissoni and other people and said, let's do an artist cinema festival in Milan. And we thought, and we spent time discussing that, and we realized that we wanted to do something different. And we wanted to use the best that Moose at the time could offer, which was its outreach. It's like it's mailing, it's outreach of people to give a sort of a second life to artist films that took one, two, three years, a lot of sweat and efforts and investment and money and time to make and then they were showed maybe in an art space in Istanbul and maybe in a gallery in San Francisco and then they're considered shown and they're not seen so we thought we want to continue giving life to these works and we want people to don't feel that they're excluded because if they don't live in Istanbul or San Francisco or Berlin or New York that they don't have access to these works so let's make an online permanent festival no 
And I think that Art Basel would never have approached me asking me to curate the film program if it was not for Vidrome, ironically. Because mm. I think we are in the moment of transformations and we are in a moment in which major institutions are looking to more grassroots or more self-funded initiatives, for example, and for inspiration and also for renewal. You know? In a moment, well, it was before COVID, but in a moment in which so many of them are in crisis because either they spend too much money in the building that now it's unsustainable or because they work with a logic and with an organization that is becoming clear and clear that is obsolete. So what I believe that was possible to bring to Art Basel was exactly the knowledge that if you don't mix levels, if you don't put Lawrence Wiener together with Adam Faraway that we just showed, or that if you don't mix generations, level of recognitions in career and voices and positions, you go nowhere. No, you stay crystallized. And so, and the funny thing is that because artist cinema is still I see artist cinema a little bit like the foster child of the art market in the sense everyone knows it's there, but it's a little bit something that is not, it's not what's going to sell in the big art fairs, you know? <laughs> so I think this allows me to have a little bit more freedom, a little bit less of budget than like my colleagues at Unlimited or Parkers have, but at the same time, a little bit more freedom to combine works, maybe some works from galleries represented by Art Basel with other works that are not there, but that are important for everyone. So I do think that it's my experiences. And the same thing with The, the Shape of a Circle and the Mind of a Fish, which is when Lucia Pietrius decided to create this general ecology project at the Serpentine, she called me and she said, will you help me establish it? And together we created this project. And this project is really trying to give voice. We did it this weekend and we had in total 4,000 people watching it, which for us is major. So all of a sudden it's like, holy, what happened here? And how come nowadays, like academics, middle-aged academics are interesting? You know, and how come people want to hear, I don't know, to a mycologist, an expert in fungi, uh, who's like 65 at the end of her academic career, and she's so enthusiastic talking about her mushrooms. And all of a sudden, how come people find this interesting? No? So, and the fish is again, like giving space and giving voice to incredible people who are doing amazing jobs and who all of a sudden understand that what they're doing, because exactly we're going through this moment of paradigm shifts and all of a sudden a 65-year-old mycologist is more appealing than a major artist, that we can, we can do this and pay tribute to these people who have been making an amazing work for a long time. The most amazing voice that we have there is Elizabeth Povinelli. But at the same time, if you go to Art Basel, how many people know who Elizabeth Povinelli is, you know? So just changing, comparing the fish with, with yeah, Art yeah. Basel in a different way. So what I think is that it's like doing works at different registers and, and believing that they actually have things to say to one another and believing that their enthusiasm and interest and discourses are interesting at, at different levels. It doesn't always work and it's not always. And again, as I feel that art cinema is the foster child of a major enterprise at Basel, I also feel that I'm like the least important. <laughs> I'm like the spare wheel in the car. But, uh, but at the same time, 
it's good. <laughs> but that's a very necessary role, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It shouldn't be undermined. No, but I, I mean, it got me thinking because at least in my limited observation of the past two decades, art's relationship to theory and maybe in a sense scientific or philosophical production has mostly were almost vampiric, like one or two people would be picked up and they would be sucked dry, if you forgive me the expression. Mm -hmm. But with the fish, I think what you are trying to do is expand that population and also in return, allow the science and humanities figures that are involved to be exposed to uh, people from more individual cultural or artistic realm. I just mentioned this, but actually believing that they actually have things to say to one another. Yeah. And that they may be speaking with different jargons and different languages, but they're interested in one another and they actually yeah. share things. And, you know... I remember seeing, like three, four years ago, you were talking about Donna Haraway, and I remember seeing a, a fashion show, like some a news of a fashion show by Prada that they said it was inspired by Donna Haraway's cyborg manifesto. And you saw like all the mannequins having like cyborg-y kind of things. And I thought, okay, we lost it. <laughs> There's no way. If like big, major fashion is so quickly appropriating the contents of theoretical production and mm. turning it into a luxury commodity, it's over, no? But at the same time, it's like, okay, so all of a sudden, people are listening to these things. These things may enter in another way. So it's a two-sided thing, which is complicated and, and it's delicate. And of course, we should resist being commodified. And when we see we, it's like a community of people who are thinking and dreaming and making collectively at different levels. But on the other one, if Prada is doing this, and if they think that Donna Haraway will allow them to sell more, it's like, wow, <laughs> how did we get there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I can't help but think, I haven't seen it yet, but I just saw that Gucci did a film with Paul B. Preciado. Oh my God, no, yeah. that's another level. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I just saw it. So I have to watch it before I can comment. But I think also, just as a parenthesis, fashion or design are also potential realms of cultural production. Like despite the degree they are, let's say, in bed with processes of commodification or rapid, let's say, more industrial complex. And also sometimes I feel we are... We, who are we? I don't know, but participants mm -hmm. in this art discussion. Also, we may tend to turn a blind eye to the industrial complex and the commodification within the realm of visual arts. And mm. that's something also maybe we need to keep reminding ourselves as well. Of course, it's not the kind of hyper-commodification that takes place in maybe the realm of fashion, but and nonetheless, I'm also eager to keep an open eye to what goes on in such fields because just as you said it is a mode of cultural production and they have a certain reach and our traditions and you know this very well as well practically by sometimes working with display you know and uh, mm -hmm. our traditions of thinking i mean the exhibitionary is not a cultural apparatus in itself it's a system of making objects and their concepts accessible to people <laughs> and so we share traditions with different 
environments. And, and these traditions are not only concerned the visible objects, but also the ways in which we want them to manifest themselves and we want them to present themselves. And, and we know, quoting the famous book, how the power of display is so fundamental for the ways in which we share ideas and we share culture and we share art objects. So it would be us trying to be blind, force ourselves to be blind, not to acknowledge how much we share mm -hmm. with these other systems and how much we owe them. I mean, traditions of museums, exhibitionary logics are very in-depth to those of storefronts and of those of department stores and and those of other more commercial contexts. And, and this continues to happen and we continue to think that. Yeah. So while we cannot just follow what other aspects of society are dictating and we should preserve the originality and the freedom of thought that we often, we meaning are having very proud of detaining, on the other hand, we are also influenced and inspired and, and in dialogue with, with what happens elsewhere. Yeah. I agree. And now that you mentioned the exhibitionary complex, I can't help but move the discussion to uh, the question of animals and mm -hmm. traditions of looking at animals, looking after animals and looking for animals. And by looking at animals, maybe we can discuss like link the exhibitionary discussion to the question of zoos or to the question of how like animal living or non-living parts have been also presented in exhibitionary manners. And I think you, as far as I know, you've also given some thought on this. And also I know that you've given some thought on looking for animals, let's say in the context of art, how we relate to them, how we represent them or how we kind of engage with them. And also looking after animals in the case of maybe companions. To make the story short, I guess the starting point for my interest, apart from being a personal interest that I have, was asking myself, how come now, almost three decades of post-colonialisms, of deconstructing the inheritances of modernity, of deconstructing those bastions of modernity that became naturalized, the separation between culture and nature, between lives that have different value and, and so on. How come certain spaces, such as those of the zoological garden, which are the direct inheritors of the marriage between spectacle, education, and patriotic, if not imperialist, values were never deconstructed. Knowing that zoos, also for that long Marxist tradition that considers thinking about animals the ultimate bourgeois vice, knowing that zoos were also, during a certain period, human, mm -hmm. human zoos. Yeah. So how come there is such an investment in rethinking colonialities and deconstructing them. And these apparatuses remain fairly immune to that criticism, when at the basis, my deep belief is that it is the legitimization of the exploitation of nature that allowed for the exploitation and abuse and differentiation of the other 
That is, from the moment in which I, human, declare myself to be distinct from the environment and to be entitled to abuse and mistreat the other species, I'm also entitled to abuse and to mistreat my fellow humans, Mm -hmm. other humans who are maybe different from me because they don't speak my language, they don't live where I live, they have a different skin color, or they have a different gender. So again, going with the risk of sounding essentialist, what I believe is that the exploitation of nature and this biases that became naturalized throughout the process of consolidation of modernity between the human and and the non-human is at the root. It's not the the soul, but it's at the roots of the legitimization of extractive, exploitative colonialism and its most dangerous offspring, which is capitalism. And so I decided to go to the core to the living core remains of this, which was the zoo. And also because I have a long-lasting interest in cinema and thinking how is the relationship between the zoo and the cinema as two sites of alienation, of projection, and of Mm -hmm. framing. And I started, and this was the root of my my PhD, looking at how certain artists used lens-based media to look at the zoos and critically relate to the space of the zoo. And trying to understand the complex mix between fascination, perversity, almost a pornographic gaze in the sense of wanting to access an intimacy that I am not entitled to, and all the operations, again, between spectacle, entertainment, and um, education that happen in that space, which is the zoo, and that legitimizes that space within the zoo, and that operates in so many levels that I mean, I've visited so many zoos in my life and there are spaces of utter sadness. It's spaces where it's interesting that we take children to be familiarized with animals that are being in a place that they haven't chosen to be. And at the same time, there is a fascination. All of a sudden you see a giraffe and you're like, the body, the texture, the patterns, or you, there's a haptic fascination by animals that is still present. So all of a sudden, your sadness, your awareness, your (laughs) critical discourse gets suspended when you face an animal and the incredible body that that animal offers to you in terms of of desire and of of relationship. So it's a, a space of ambiguity and a space where very complex operations take place. And But I find it a fascinating place and a fascinating starting point exactly to further mine those very well-established roots Mm -hmm. of modernity and to think again about the exhibitionary as an apparatus that art doesn't have the monopoly of. Mm -hmm. We tend to think that art exhibitions are something that we detain when actually the exhibitionary is something we share with many other traditions of rendering ideas and objects public that go from from science to engineer and so on and so forth. So it's like standing in this balance. And also it made me think about now in the like listening to you talking about it, it made me think about also the tension or relationship between the interface, which is the cage in the case of the zoological garden, they become much more softer, but ultimately it's a cage. 
the interface of the cage and the experience of the other. And that mm-hmm. there is this kind of tension and movement back and forth between the experience and the interface. And somehow that maybe generates also that paradox, which is at once you are both enchanted and also in a way find yourself kind of unhappy about the way. Totally. And you go through registers. I mean, I have a very, very sad comparison, but my grandmother who passed away a few years ago, she had Alzheimer's. And in the beginning, the first years of her disease, she would go from getting lost or forgetting who she was or thinking that my mother was her mother or going through confusion and then getting out and being completely lucid. Mm-hmm. Being like, what's happening to me? Why am I losing my memory? Why is this happening? And then vroom, going in and going out. And there is a malaise that, with all respect to an illness that is extremely serious, and I'm just making this comparison on a metaphorical level, but there is this being in and out that the zoo and the cinema, I mean, Foucault has a beautiful text on what he calls the heterotopias no, of these environments that happens at the zoo, which is, I know I'm here. I know this is not the correct ways to host these other beings. I know this is an obsolete inheritance of the celebration of patriotism or in cases of some European zoos celebrating the authority of fascism and also imperialist claims and so on and so forth. And at the same time, <laughs> there I am looking at a rhinoceros and thinking this animal is incredible. And then <laughs> I get out. No? And it's a really interesting experience of mind-altering experience this capacity of being in and out, as when you watch a good film. You no, know, you may be attentive to the edits, to the montage, to the relation to sound, to everything else, and all of a sudden, there you are crying <laughs> <laughs> or being very moved with a scene. You know, and and you know you are willingly suspending your disbelief, but that's why you go to the cinema as well. You no, know? yeah. And I think the zoo offers exactly that same kind of um, back and forth experience in a really important way. Yeah. And the consequences may be more dire or le- at least without the uh, consent of the living things. But yeah, but yeah. maybe this could be a good moment to also open up for further questions or comments from the group. Highly conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email. John and, and I was discussing about uh, plant sex. Would you like to go on between the relationship between uh, botany and the eroticism, please? That's a nice question. Uh, so you are alluding to one of the events that we organized with the Serpentine Galleries, which we, well, it was meant to be only an event dedicated to the new discoveries and new contributes to reevaluate plant sentience and plant consciousness in science and also the struggles and the obstacles that different scientists are going through while doing it. Because by doing so, they're also having to redefine what these concepts as intelligence or consciousness or sensibility are. And all of a sudden, while doing this whole research, with Lucia Pietriusti, we realized that there was a very important thread 
that would also deserve a special line of analysis, which was that of plant, on the one hand, plants in their concreteness as the attention towards how they reproduce and what comes after the reproduction of plants. And on the other one, on their abstract entity, how plants provided metaphors for so much of descriptions and allusions to intimacy that were either very prude or embraced plants as a way to speak about something else. And I I should say that the starting point for this desire to isolate plant sex from the big symposium on plants also came from something that at the end didn't really emerge in the symposium, which was all of a sudden, it's not like we discovered the will, but all of a sudden we realized how the taxonomic division of life, Mm -hmm. you know, the Latin nomenclature that is given to different, and that separates and like we're alone in being the only species that doesn't have direct bifurcations of other subspecies, but that this whole classification of life was largely initiated by a man, a Swedish man, Carolus Linnaeus, who based it on the sexual organs of plants. That is, and Linnaeus was a quasi-priest. He was an extremely religious man. He only did one trip in his life and it was to the Arctic to collect specimens to his research. And he spent the whole rest of his life in Sweden doing his work from his home and and from his studio. And he decided to ground his taxonomic logics on the sexual organs of plants. So there you have this man who's very prude, very religious, who's obsessed with plant sex, to the point that that becomes the division of the system that he created and which it became still today the system upon which we define nature. The International Taxonomic Society, which is based in in London, the Linnean Society, is still the entity that decides what are the new species that are invented, if their names are okay. And many of these names are, again, patriotic, imperialist, nationalistic tributes to princes, emperors, dictators, whatever you want, that are given names to starfish or birds or elephants. And this was the beginning. It's like, okay, so... Probably Linnaeus' inspiration was also a religious one, a biblical one, which is we have the separation between women and men from this text. What if this was not the major separation that distinguishes individuals from different species, but it was, for instance, height or other elements? But no, gender is an element that divides species, no? that, and that is fundamental for the Bible, in particular for the Ancient Testament, and probably Linnaeus inspired in this sexual division to then operate his taxonomic division and classification of life based first on plants, like do plants have sexual organs outside or inside themselves, and then going from from there. And from this starting point, we decided to invite a series of speakers to address the complex relationship between abstraction, allegory, imagination of plant sexuality to think about 
actual sexuality in our event. And so we combined historians of, of mysticism with writers and with historians of science and philosophers and artists, again, to just <laughs> dissect and investigate this incredible source, this incredible fountain of imaginary for sexuality that is botany, no? That was a beautiful answer. <laughs> more cultural institutions are at least trying to reflect on how to become more compatible with this current moment. And how do you think the schools are in that regard? I should start by saying that I feel, again, extremely privileged by being part of the Arts Institute of Basel, the Institute Kunst, as you mentioned. And this happened four or five years ago. The then newly appointed director, who's a, a Spanish curator called Chus Martinez, she asked me to join the team at the time just as a, an eventual lecturer. And then that became a more official position. And Chus, who was my teacher, this is how I know her. Many years ago when I did a postgraduate in Barcelona, she is someone who, I don't know how she does it. I think there must be some kind of uh, black magic. But she has the capacity to turn rigid institutions into places of experimentation and making it look as if it's very easy. So she got to a school that was largely based on very classical teaching, that is classical painting and sculpture. And she just turned it upside down and made it something that she thought was aligned with her thoughts that artistic research is not something unique to the arts in the sense artistic research is not a, an artist going to Google, finding some things and incorporating them in their work. But artistic research is actually a tool and a system to produce knowledge about the world as valid, as important, and as legitimate as that of scientific research, for instance. And that starting point, that element, that was when she invited me. She said, I want you to do this art and science and art and nature workshops because for me, thinking about artistic research and thinking about art at the beginning of the 21st century has to be to think about different epistemological systems and how art can be a hub where they meet. And this is how I joined the Arts Institute. And it's funny because this can come back to the, the plant sex question because this has been allowing me to do a series of seminars, bringing together people from different disciplines to speak about these correlations, being them inviting a marine biologist and an artist who have been collaborating over the years. Or, for instance, this last workshop that I did in the beginning of November, which was thinking about the imbrications and the combinations between race and nature. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it was inspired by African-American sci-fi writer Octavia Butler has a beautiful essay, which is called Why is Sci-Fi So White and Male? And this was the starting point for me to think, why is thinking about nature being still considered such a white privilege? Starting point, and could we think about nature be a way exactly to think how it is a way to think about race and systems of oppression. 
So I invited different speakers, Colin Diane, who has been thinking about the relationship between jurisdiction and prison systems in Haiti and in the US and comparing them with systems of um, of keeping dogs and teaching dogs and seeing how the bare life, the when life is reduced to the minimum, the, the human is exactly rendered into just a, yet another animal, to Benedict Boisseron, who wrote this incredible book called The Afro Dog, thinking about the relationship between African blackness and certain animals, to Mel White Chen, who has been writing about animacies and thinking about what is the animated body across different genres and, and, and races, and Patricia Farah, who was the woman who wrote this incredible book about Linneo's obsession with plant sexuality, who wrote this book called Sex, Botany and Empire. Mm-hmm. And she was exactly talking about the correlation between imperialism, scientific explorations and sexuality. Hi, Philippa. Nice to uh, meet you. Actually, I read your um, text a couple of years ago and referred it in, into my thesis, the company one keeps that was uh, published in mm-hmm. um, Iflux, which was, I think, really fascinating, in which um, you were talking about lab as the space of, you know, intimacy. Mm-hmm. and But at the same time, you know, it's a, it's a possibility of showing oneself in an economic way, maybe, you know, like it's a posture too. Mm-hmm. And thinking about that space and especially what we've been talking about, I feel like desire stands in the you know, main place within all these problematics or, you know, all these things. And then especially even before COVID, you know, the much and much more we're getting into this, you know, image-based world and thinking about all these artificial environments or, such as social media, but also at the same time, you know, the city itself. You talked about, you know, London betraying you. And talking about London, you know, it, it made me think of, it as a, another organism, you know, that city is, is another being, which is another other. And then, anyway, within this way and like in this COVID times, now lip becomes this another symbol for privilege too. I think the lap starts with the intimacy of an offspring. With this, I'm not trying to fetishize motherhood as the unique site where this relationship can happen. But at the same time, the lap is a place that has been largely commodified and appropriated as unpaid and material labor, which is that of the love, the attention, the care, and the time dedicated by parents to their offspring or by caretakers to those they are looking after. And in this sense, despite the fact that the big limitation we have here with COVID is that this space remains closed within the realm of the family or the realm of the house and therefore doesn't allow interpersonal connections, which is what, I don't know about you, is what I'm lacking the most. But I do think that in this sense, it's not a space of privilege. And on the contrary, the lap, going back to what you were touching upon, desire, the lap becomes even more the site where all our effective 
libidinal transactions are taking place at the moment because more than ever, we're stuck with our laptops. And the other day I was thinking like, what would be worse, COVID or the end of the internet? <laughs> and um, I don't know if you saw the last Blade Runner ex- starts exactly by speculating on the big blackout that erased all the memory from the internet era, which is exactly if the internet stops now, we're really screwed. We really have to start learning how to walk again, to say figuratively. So on the one hand, the lab remains the site of basic care and this site which has been so much exploited and so much taken for granted throughout centuries. And on the other hand, with COVID becomes the site where we transfer our affects and our desires because we're carrying these computers as if they were our umbilical cord or our phones or something, but still it happens like in this area, no? Umbilical cord to the world. And so if the intimacy between individuals has been temporarily been arrested by the fact that we just realized that our bodies are porous and that our bodies can transmit, that the skin is no protection membrane. No? On the other hand, I think that the lab continues to remain a very basic site of care, of intimacy, and also of, as you mentioned, libidinal exchange at all levels when buying, when communicating, when consuming, when expressing myself. The way uh, you address the city as an organism and us as another was quite interesting. Thank you for that. We understand also the city as a living body and look for, you know, these different spaces in which encountering the other remains. Because I think it's this idea of not, uh, you know, fleeing the city, but still finding these ways in which you can go beyond this, I would say, this parasitic relationship that you're describing, you know, that it sucks up life and this vital energy from you and you just give and give and give. So I'm actually having many reflections on this notion of maybe thinking of different scales of relation because I feel this macro parasitic relation that sucks but also where can we you know shift a bit or think of these micro encounters with the other because as you were talking all all of you this idea of this space this such a small space that we are connecting with but something that you open your computer and you're kind of deciding where you meet who you meet but then where do you encounter this unexpected or this other that you know can provoke can shake a bit this doll sitting in the computer and this safeness of the lab that you were discussing. So I'm just mostly reflecting on that. I don't know, have like a particular question, but from all your insights, it makes me think that also artistic research is important in this way. Like we propose different gestures that we don't take as, you know, artworks, but as starting points of conversations and starting points to actually think and produce knowledge or enter in conversation with other forms of knowledge that are not produced where you would expect, maybe. 
Yeah, it's very true what you're saying. And let me say something. I'm 42 and this decision of moving to or getting a little house in the natural park happened when I was 40. It would never, not because of money, of course, because that's sure, but it would never happen if I was 10 years ago. What I felt is that, okay, I think, fingers crossed, I hope that I've managed to get a pocket of security, professional security, that allows me to not be present all the time. And this comes with a certain time in my age, because I totally agree. And being here since for months, it has completely destroyed all my bucolic fantasies, because I'm craving for being in another place. Exactly because what you say, because it's not in the tamed, controlled environment that you discover. Exactly what you mean. I mean, an event is a life-changing element that you cannot control. And for this to happen, I think you need to be in places that shatter you a little bit and where these things happen. It's not here that these, I mean, some encounters here will happen, but And so at the same time, this COVID thing, it won't last forever. I mean, knock on wood. So my dream is like my my wet dream is that summer 22, it will be a summer of love. It will be like an orgiastic explosion of bodies and affects and love and care because we will be able to embrace, touch, kiss, do whatever we want to each other, even if we will have the wake of the traumas and, and the problems. It won't be summer 2021 for sure, but I'm like, my horizon is getting there, you know? to summer 2022 and then this keeps me happy and keeps I I start smiling only thinking about the silly idea that I made to myself but anyway um I totally agree that for this to happen it has to be in places where people mix where different people come together and where different people and non-people as well negotiate their existence no and so yeah no in that Uh, way it also makes sense I mean, where you are situated, and I think it relates to how we deal with the present and where we are situated right now. That could be very huge city, but could be, you know, everywhere around the globe. Mm. So um, how we deal and how we enter in dialogue with the subjects and you know, human. Yeah, and, with, human. and with the other, also in a really interesting way. For instance, here, my neighbors. I'm in a, a kind of a impoverished area of north of France, and my neighbors they vote for this party called Front National, which is like a right-wing, racist, xenophobic party. And they, at the same time, have more time and generosity towards me than probably my London neighbors would have. And they are scared of immigrants. They're scared of what they call les Arabes, the Arabs. They are scared of everything. But all of a sudden, I'm not a foreign Portuguese person. I'm their neighbor. And I'm establishing a relationship with them, which is ambiguous because I, I try to go very careful on their politics. And, uh, and now they know what they call that I'm an ecolo, which is what they hate because most of them are hunters or they're farmers and they believe that ecology is what is destroying their security, you know? And so I'm, I'm finding a way to negotiate my being and to establish affects with people that probably living in London and being with my art friends and having my environment there, I wouldn't have. So this can also happen elsewhere in unexpected ways. But it's true that 
the the intensity of human and non-human social interactions in places where people come together are unreplaceable. Thank you, Valentina. And I also want to tap into something both of you have raised, Filippo at an earlier point and Valentina just now. What are the tools, in a way, we have to escape formats of knowing or the boundaries of knowing, epistemological registers. And art still seems to propose some potential or some alternative, because I'm looking at art, anthropology and geography, which is, I think, especially anthropology, the most fascinating work is coming out of. But still, they are, I mean, given language as a frame, I don't know if we would be ever able to develop symmetrical accounts of our relationship between uh, non-human living things, animals, machines, and because we are still producing that knowledge as human beings and within humanities. And I don't want to build a huge horizon of, of our art, but at least it can shift or move around or slide through different epistemological registers and which could allow it to maybe propose alternatives of knowing. I totally agree. And also alternatives of language, no? Because we have the privilege of being able of inventing other languages that are not only verbal. And words, they have such weight and they have such a connotation that sometimes art can address these issues by bypassing these terms, some of which can make us roll our eyes, like, or people who are not, participating in, in the same context as, as we are, just like roll our eyes. Well, we can speak beyond words or say things beyond words, which is really, really important. And maybe for that, because you mentioned Chus and her black magic, we had her in the last episode. And at the very end of the episode, she gives us an account of her experience with the work of John Jonas. And both our participants and the listeners can also visit that to get a sense of like what can refer to. Yeah, uh, not our amazing witch, I would say. <laughs> so I just thought about this closure and like how do you actually reflect it also like with your finesse about like exhibition making? Like do you think like now we have grown a certain empathy or like are we as a society incapable of growing that empathy also towards other beings and prospectively towards machines now that we are closed, also like forcefully closed. The social life of exhibitions is fundamental. And when I mean the social life, it's not only how nice it is to drink a beer with friends after an opening, but it's actually the joy of celebrating the outcome of a process of an intellectual and emotional process of making something happen for the joy of sharing it with others. And I think we are largely lacking this social aspect of exhibitions and both the social relation to others and even the way I respond to socially seeing things, how I get moved or irritated or think with things. I need to think with things in, in space. I've been extremely frustrated by this online viewing rooms that galleries and art fairs are, are making because... Yes, they are important tools of accessibility and all of a sudden they also render accessible to people who cannot either because they're physically incapable or they're geographically also incapable of, of accessing them. But 
they cannot replace the actual experience of art, which is an experience of space and of relating with our body to other elements that we encounter and with other people. So I think this was enhanced. And connecting this to the empathy, you know, empathy is an interesting concept because in as much as it is a fundamental tool for the desire to begin a form of attention towards the other, it has to be a beginning. It cannot be a limit in itself because empathy can also be what prevents me from doing something more. You're sad, you're depressed. I feel so much empathy towards you. And okay, that's it, you see? And it's not. Empathy, it cannot be a bottleneck feeling. It has to be, okay, I understand what that person is going through. I'm going to make something. I'm going to try and change something. So empathy is is an important starting point. It's the same. Very often, I don't think it's enough to feel, to raise empathy towards the poor animals that are in the zoo, because then that's a form of uh, feeling sad and feeling moved, but often doing nothing. I need empathy to wake me up and to start feeling other things that are wilder and more intense. Can it be rage or desire for transmission of something else? And what I believe the current situation is doing us is exactly making us realize that the transformative aspect of empathy and our relationship with culture and art and the forms in which these culture and art is shared has to be presential and has only unexpected, as Valentina was saying, happens and only feelings you cannot control and movements towards transformations happen when we share our bodies in the same space and we contact with different elements that are presented to us. So looking forward to summer of 2022? Yes! Ah, yes. Uh, This was amazing. Thank you, Philippa. It's been great. You know, I had this weekend of the fish serpentine and uh, and sometimes I feel, you know, when after you do something that you've been preparing for months and and you get the adrenaline of the event and afterwards, for me, it's so easy to have a down. Like, oh, Mm. and now. So this is great from distracting me from having a down morning. It's like a continuing thinking. And so, yeah, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for joining our conversation with Filipa Ramos, a sharp mind who navigates multiple platforms within visual arts to bring people and their visions together and towards the process of thinking with one another. A remarkable insight on how human understanding of the world, in other words, our knowledge, is still shaped by categorical differentiations and at times random attempts at distinction of the human being through science. Her call in response is not to feel powerless, but on the contrary, to use whatever mental and cultural tools we have towards the transformation of society and the ways in which it has come to produce knowledge. I want to thank you for joining Ahali. Make sure to check out our episode notes to find out more about the works we discussed in this episode. You can also visit us at ahali.space and please feel free to get in touch if you'd like to join our live gatherings and Q&A sessions with our guests. Hope to see you next time.